Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting with Bruce Kelly. And today we are going to be talking about all things capital markets with Tim Murray, capital market strategist at in the multi-asset division at T. Rowe Price Associates in Baltimore. I think you're in Baltimore, aren't you, Tim? I am in Baltimore. I, I'm here and enjoying a beautiful day in Baltimore after three days of uh, Ian uh, pounding us with wind and rain. So glad to be right. here. Well, glad you're all safe and sound. I spent uh, about nine years living in that area. Um, a lot of good memories from Baltimore. Bruce, you want to say hi to us all? Yeah. Hello. Hello, Tim. Thanks for coming on board. We love Baltimore. Are you an O's fan or a Ravens fan? <laughs> I am very much an, an Orioles fan. Um, they had a much better year this year, right? <laughs> yeah, they did. They did, and the future looks bright. Yeah, I just I, I I love the stadium. I love the vibe whenever I get a chance when I'm down in Baltimore, and I just love how people say the O's. <laughs> I don't know if they're a leading indicator here of what's going on with the markets, but <laughs> well, I guess you could say I guess you could you could certainly say that uh, the future looks brighter than the past. Uh, hopefully, is <laughs> is a good analogy to the market. Hopefully, from hopefully. Here. We're going to get into some of the the hard stuff that you focus on all day long, markets, inflation, Fed policy, recession, all of the above. But let's let's start with Fed policy. It seems to be a consensus out there that we're going to get to 5% overnight rate. Is that where you see it? And I mean, we're what, three, three and a half right now? You see us getting up to 5%? I don't think we will get to 5%. It's certainly not out of the question. Um, I mean, if I, if I look at, it depends on on what barometer you're using for for what where we will go? Um, if you look at the OIS market, it would say we don't quite get to five percent, or it, it would actually leave us around. I think the peak is about four fifty six. So I, I think that's probably about right. Um, certainly, the last the last uh, summary of economic pro- projections that came out was a bit of a shock when they when they moved their projections up um, quite a bit. But that said, I, I do think when, when I look at inflation, there's good news and there's bad news. And the good news is that if you look at the commodities part or the goods part of inflation, it pretty clearly has peaked and it's coming down. And the forward indicators we look at would say that's going to continue. Mm-hmm. The bad news is that in that service, the services side of it, which is 55% of CPI, is still on a kind of a steady march upward. Uh, so, so that's that's certainly concerning. And that and and the important thing about that is that what the Fed can have the biggest impact on is services, because services is is really driven by the housing market and it's driven by wages. The good news there, I would say, is that the Fed has made a lot of progress on slowing the pace of the housing market. I mean, any any housing market data you look at will will show you that activity is has more or less fallen off a cliff. Wages, not so much. Certainly, wages we've seen um, then stay pretty steady, and until the the job openings data that came out last week, or actually, I guess that was earlier this week. Um, I would have said the Fed's made no progress on the labor market, but the the, the big drop in job openings it went from 11.1 million to 10 million. Um, that was the first real sign of progress on the labor market, and so that gives me some some encouragement that we're finally getting to the point where inflation is 
sustainably rolling over for where, where not only do we have the goods part going down, but we have uh, insight into services coming down. It might take might take a while, but I do think the Fed's going to see that and be a little more willing to uh, pause. It's not cut rates, but certainly pause. And so I, I think for that reason, we won't quite get to 5%. One thing I don't understand when I hear these numbers at 5% or below for Fed policy uh, projections. How do you handle or manage inflation at over 8% without getting closer to 8% on the Fed policy? So that 8% number is um, really driven by, like I said, it's driven, most of the force has been from commodities. And commodities really don't react that much to interest rates. Um, certainly, you rise, you increase interest rates. That means demand comes down. Aggregate demand comes down, and as aggregate demand demand comes down, that helps bring down the price of commodities. But there's, as as you know, there's a lot of other things right now that are impacting commodities. So, I think commodities are are that part of it is coming down on its own. Because even the, even though CPI is at eight percent, that doesn't. It, it's going to come down below the five percent that that you're looking at. If in fact, if you look at just services, services on its own is basically creating three point four percent of the CPI right now. So with that, if if, if commodities were zero percent, or services. Would mean by itself would mean CPI is 3.4 percent year over year. So from that from that standpoint, and like I said, that's what the Fed can really have the biggest effect on. From that standpoint, you do have have rates at five percent. That's that would be considered tight a tight um, rate, and, and and something that's going to cause cause uh, inflation to come down. And then the next step, how do we not end up in a recession, or do you see us in a recession? Well, I would say uh, there's a it, it's a hard call to make. Uh, there's a pretty good chance that we do end up in recession. Um, bottom line is that we came out of COVID with with really uh, really strong demand. Um, consumers saved a tremendous amount of money during the pandemic, right? That's that's what happens when you go into lockdown and you simply can't spend money. You know, certainly there were a lot of consumers who lost wages during the pandemic, but because of fiscal stimulus, you know, if you look at the numbers, the, the amount of fiscal stimulus that we got more than made up for those lost wages. So the end result was that consumers had a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of uh, cash in their checking accounts, and they wanted to get back out and, and have a little fun and, and, and enjoy life. And so that meant demand. We came out of the pandemic with really high level of, of aggregate demand. But on the flip side, we had low supply because we still had these supply chain issues. Um, we also had, you know, early this year when Russia invaded Ukraine, that meant you had a, a supply shortage and, and, you know, the, the things that Russia and Ukraine supply to the world. So that created even lower level of supply. And then lastly, uh, an, another side effect of the pa- pandemic is that labor supply went down, right? Because uh, a lot of people either, you know, saved a lot of money and then were able to retire early, or simply the health impacts. The uh, uh, you know, sadly, the health impacts of COVID have meant that a lot of people haven't been able to go back into the workforce. So the bottom line is that we have demand pushed up high and supply lower than it was before. 
And when you get that situation, you get runaway inflation. And the only way to solve runaway runaway inflation is for, for those two to come back together to an equilibrium point. And so we know supply is improving a little bit, but mostly the, the difference is going to have to be made up by aggregate demand coming down. And that means an economic slowdown. Is that, is it, does it travel so much ground that we have a recession? Probably, I would say, probably a, a better than fifty or better better than fifty percent chance that we do. But it's certainly not a, it, it's not a certainty at this point. And, and if I can if I can add something else encouraging to that to that outlook is that the good news is that going into this economic slowdown, as I said, consumers have a lot of cash on their balance sheets. But that's also the case with uh, corporations. Corporations also high levels of cash, low levels of debt, uh, much more so than what you normally get when you get this late into an economic cycle when you're when you're worried about recession. So that means that if we do go into recession, so we do have a, a, a slowdown that qualifies as a recession. The good news is that it's probably not going to result in a lot of bankruptcies, not going to result in a lot of widespread um, people having default on loans and companies having to uh, go declare bankruptcy. And that really, when you have that widespread bankruptcy problem, that's when a recession becomes a deep recession and a really harmful recession. And it looks like we're going to avoid that simply because of the strong position both corporations and consumers were in going into the recession. So that tells me that while it's a hard call as to whether or not we go into recession, uh, I, I know myself and a lot of other people at T. Rowe Price have pretty high confidence that if we do go into that recession, it's going to be a relatively mild one. Well, what do you think the equity markets are responding to right now? The, the fact that there's a potential to likely recession, the fact that Fed rates are are you know, going higher and inflation doesn't seem to be really tapering off as quickly as I think a lot of people would would like? Or is it other things? Is it geopolitics or, the, you know, the global economy? What is it? Because these yeah, equity markets seem like they're just, they just want to go down. It, so it's, it's the, the specter of recession and, and the impact that's going to have on company earnings. Um, so, so far, if you look at for, important metric to keep in mind when you're, you're thinking about stock market is what's the, what's the forward earnings estimates? And those estimates peaked in June um, and now have come down by about 2%. In a, in a normal recession, you can expect those estimates to fall by something in the neighborhood of 20, 25%. Uh, so there's so so that's what the I, I think that's what mostly markets are looking at right now. They're saying, boy, if we do go into recession, we could see earnings take a really big haircut from here. Now, like I said, we think it's mild, um, which means you probably don't get a twenty percent haircut, but it still could be pretty pretty significant. Uh, so th- that's what markets are looking at. And the other the other thing they're looking at, so kind of, I would also say what they're the number one thing that they're looking at is the Fed. Because the markets know that the the thing that is causing the recession is the Fed. The Fed basically is is saying we've got to fight inflation. Mm-hmm. Powell's made it very clear at every single one of his press conferences that the priority is fighting inflation over helping out the economy. Right? They have a dual mandate: helping or uh, keeping keep prices um, stable and help out the economy. 
And that dual mandate, they went through a long period of time where that dual mandate, those two things weren't at odds with each other. Uh, basically, whenever the economy weakened, they could just lower rates and, and the economy would respond. But now they're having to, they're having to choose one between, you know, they're having to choose one over the other, I should say. And the bottom line is they're choosing inflation, and they should. Um, you know, a, a, a economic uh, history would tell you that runaway inflation is is a really bad problem and a, and a hard one to solve, much harder one than than if you have a recession. So they're choosing inflation. Uh, so so basically, markets are watching the Fed and saying, at what point have they decided? Okay, we've done our job on inflation, and now we can go back to thinking about helping out the economy. So that's the number one thing that markets are looking at. And until they see that switch happen, until they see that pivot happen, uh, the outlook's going to be pretty negative. But along the way, we're going to get data, and, and the market's going to react to the data that that they either like or dislike, which which tells them whether or not they think the Fed's closer to a pivot or further away. Okay. Bruce Kelly, you want to take us around the world? Yeah. Hey, Tim. I was speaking to Jeff earlier about this, and my my questions are more along the lines of how these big macro you know waves in the market with rising interest rates, stocks going down, how this is affecting you know the street uh, more, and particularly you know the the English bond market has collapsed essentially, I guess, and there's a, been a lot of recent speculation that there could be a Lehman Brothers like moment with uh, Credit Suisse. And uh, that got me thinking back to, you know, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and what happened in 2000 in the, in the spring and, and summer of 2008 there with, with those firms um, essentially being having to be bailed out and bought out. So just wanted to get your, your, your take on that from the, from the macro or the micro level. I mean, there were, you know, when people <laughs> say, hey, we're going to have another Lehman Brothers, I, I start to feel fear and anxiety in, in, in my bone marrow. Yeah, I, it certainly is understandable to, uh, to to have that fear, given given how, you know, I lived through the financial crisis. Um, right. For those of us who went through it, you know, I mean, we don't want to go back there, right? We do not. Yes, we absolutely do not. Um now, what I would say, so if you if you think back to the financial crisis, the you know as we all know, the the primary problem there was kind of the mortgage market. Um, not only that, the, the, the and basically in that case, there were a lot of underlying assumptions about mortgages that suddenly got turned on their head. Right. Essentially, real estate can never go down in the United States. Yeah, ex- that was the, it was a long bet that would never exactly. Yep, exactly. Real estate doesn't go down. Right. So mortgages are really safe. Um, and then we found out that was not true. But also what was what was really harmful about it was that there were all these really you know, globally systematically important banks that had a lot of these mortgages on their balance sheet right. as assets. And so it was, it was really widespread. What the the two um the the two recent uh, pieces of news that you referred to with Credit Suisse concerns and and the um, the volatility we saw with um, with interest rates in the UK those those I don't I I I think as far as we know at, at this point those would not qualify as you've got assets that are on 
balance sheets all over the globe with with and systematically important banks. So for that reason, at this point, you wouldn't look at that and say, oh, this has the potential to be another global financial crisis. It certainly is an ugly situation and it highlights the fact that there's a lot of volatility in markets that, that has to do with market liquidity, especially in the bond market. Um, right. and, and that's being certainly exacerbated by the fact that the Fed uh, and other central banks are, are trying to, to do quantitative tightening. They're trying to, you know, they have these really large balance sheets and they're trying to, to roll that back down. Um, and that, that's created some friction and volatility, particularly in rates markets. Are, are, are clients, big institutions that you guys work with or wealthy investors, uh, is, you know, is there a run on the bank anywhere? Are they clamoring to get out of illiquid assets or because rates are rising and they might be on the wrong side of the trade or, you know, or any of these big, you know, big real estate funds, are they having to cut their uh, dividends at all to people um, who invest in stuff like that, almost like it's a it's a fixed income part of the portfolio. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that we're seeing that. We're we're not seeing um, a disorderly um, sell off uh, outside of a few isolated incidents, like you like you noted. In general, um, I think another another. I guess comforting point about the outlook, uh, even though we are headed to recession. Like I said, the balance sheets are strong, and it's not a shock. I think a, a lot of people have seen this coming um, for quite some time. So you're not seeing a lot of situations where um, companies have made assumptions about the future that have turned out to be completely wrong. Now, maybe the assumptions they had a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, maybe those assumptions have turned out to be completely wrong, but they've the the those assumptions becoming wrong has been more of kind of a gradual change than a sudden change, which was the case with the global financial crisis and which is oft, often the case uh, when you have these really deep bear markets. How different is it from now compared to 2008 when we do have you know, Twitter, Reddit, Facebook. I mean, people talk about that in terms of politics and what's it, all those social media platforms have done to our political discourse. But how closely does a big firm like Tiro, like one of the leading money managers, right, in, in the country, if not the world, how closely do you guys pay to um, social media chatter uh, and how that affects you know, um, investment, uh, investing sentiment and perception and the like. Because there's a there's a ton of people out there on Twitter saying that Credit Suisse is going to go up in flames because they're trying to, <laughs> they're shorting the market most likely, right? So they want the market yeah. to keep going down and they don't like it when it rallies for, for two days like it recently did. Is that something you guys watch? I, we don't pay a lot of attention to to, to what people are saying on Twitter. And I, I mean, it, what matters is the source, right? I mean, if it's if it's someone with a lot of credibility that knows a lot, um, that that would make us make us kind of take notice. But that said, we 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 have a lot of other sources that we trust, and also, you know, you, you're not getting it in a public forum um, always. 
outcome. So, you know, we have analysts, we have, you know, we have analysts who cover Credit Suisse and, and they're going to, uh, you know, have, have their, uh, have their views based on, you know, hard data analysis and kind of their understanding of the company. And, and we'll certainly rely on that. Um, and, and then, you know, we'll rely on other sources that we might have other, other, um, you know, uh, other sources, be they public or private. I mean, regardless, if you're, if you're a financial house or a financial institution and you increase leverage and you're levered up and you get caught on the wrong side of rising interest rates, you, you, you could be in for a, a tough time, right? Yep. Yeah. I, it happens. I, I mean, I, I, I will say this. So, so we, we went through a very long period where interest rates were very low. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of companies um, made the assumption that that would be the case for a very, very long time going forward. And they've found out somewhat rapidly that's not the case. Uh, and, and that does create some situations where, where people's assumptions um, get them in a lot of trouble. Um, where I think where you really saw that impact the market was in a lot of the more growthier companies. Um, so you saw, you know, there were there were clear places, and the good news is that I think most market participants were aware that there was a lot of froth in areas like cloud software. Um, some of the um, some of the electric vehicle companies, some other kind of renewable energy companies, some the SPAC market certainly uh, we we saw it there. Crypto um, certainly was a, a a place where you saw a lot of excess froth, where prices went up and people chased momentum, and the prices were not at all based on on fundamentals. And so that's and, and, and as interest rates came down. I think a lot of people recognize because these these companies generally the idea was boy they're going to have really strong earnings in the future, and when rates are low, the discount rate applied to those earnings means that those earnings are still if the if the discount rate is low, those earnings are worth more to are are, are worth a decent amount today, but if the interest rates go go up, then that discount rate goes goes higher. And that means that those earnings tomorrow are worth less today. Uh, you know, it's the, I, I hate to get too much in the weeds, but it's kind of that finance 101 um, concept that, that, that a lot of us would have learned in, in college. And if you didn't just know this, that for growth companies, when interest rates go up, that really hurts um, their, their outlook. And so that's where you really saw a lot of, of the pain happen early this year. And I, and I think most institutional investors, and I, I'm not sure this is the case for most retail investors, but certainly most institutional investors were not completely caught off guard by that. They, they, we, all, we all knew that it, it was a possibility um, that as, as interest rates went up, that these companies could sell off pretty sharp. Right. That's fascinating. Jeff? Yeah. Um, Tim, where does T. Rowe see opportunities right now yeah i would i would say there's there's some areas of the market so everything has gotten a lot cheaper right when that that's the good thing about a sell off the the prices that you that you pay going forward are, are a lot cheaper um 
and a lot of asset classes have gotten cheaper. Uh, and and it, it's happened both on the equity side and the fixed income side. Uh, within equities, though, there are some areas that I would say are pricing in a more dire scenario than others are. And those, those two areas that I would point you to are emerging markets and small cap. Uh, so uh, U.S. small cap companies. And so those, those are areas that do look attractive to us. Now, that said, those are also happen to be two areas that are the most economically economically sensitive, right? So, so there are volatile areas and you're taking risk by, by, um, by allocating assets there. But we do think the risk reward there looks pretty attractive relative to the rest of the equity market. Uh, it's just one that you don't want to make a really big bet because, because they, are, they are volatile and risky areas. Uh, but I, but 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 those areas that are areas that look attractive. On the other, on the flip side, I would say in fixed income, there's a lot of certainly rates have gone up a lot. I, I would say for the first time in a very long long time, the risk reward kind of the 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 balance that you're looking at for government bonds um, is actually relatively attractive at this point, especially since they tend to be a good hedge if we do go into recession. Um, so that the long treasuries, I would say, do do look attractive to us at at this point, or at least I would say I I would say that the outlook there is is much more balanced than it has been before. And then I also I would also point to high yield. And, but but just to be clear, I think right now if if we're looking at our portfolio and and we're making a choice between taking risk in equities broadly or in high yield broadly. I would say that high yield has a better risk reward uh, ratio at this point than equities, uh, simply because the valuations are very attractive in high yield, uh, attract, pretty attractive in equities, but probably a little more attractive in high yield. Uh, one of the uh, one of the best ways to compare high yield to equities is to compare what's the yield the worst for high yield. And what is the earnings yield for equities? And so if you're not familiar with earnings yield, basically, instead of P over E, you're taking E over P, right? Earnings over price gives you the earnings yield. So it's the inverse of what the PE is. And right now, if you look at global high yield, if I look at the, the Bloomberg um, global high yield index, it's at about 10.2% uh, yield to worst. whereas if you look at global equities, so I'm talking about the uh, MSCI All Country World Index, its uh, it, its earnings yield is just over seven percent. About the last time I looked at it, it was seven point oh three percent. So you're getting a much better yield um, from high yield than you are from equities, and that's even and that's not just a dividend yield. That's when you take into account all of the earnings that you're getting from equities, and that's that's relatively rare. Like you you, you normally don't see that. Uh, in high yield, at least you haven't over the last decade. There's there's been a few episodes over the last decade, but for the most part, it, that hasn't been the case. So that, from an evaluation standpoint, that looks attractive to us. And then you take on on top of that, if you look at the under underlying fundamentals for high yield, as I mentioned earlier, corporations have done a really good job of building up their balance sheets, having a lot of cash on balance sheets and relatively low debt, and 
that is reflected when you look at the high yield market and you look at you know uh, companies' interest coverage ratios, and more importantly, if you look at interest cover coverage ratios excluding capex, so you take capex out of out of earnings. Um, so, so, which basically means this is the sustainable level of earnings that, that a company has relative to um, interest payments. And that ratio is up to 3.5 right now, or at least it was um, uh, the, mo- the most recent time that we got data on this. And I can tell you that over the past decade, that ratio has generally been between 1.5 and 2.5. So now it's all the way up to 3.5. So if you look at the fundamentals, and this is not the only metric that will tell you this, a mosaic of, of metrics will give you will help you come to this conclusion. The high yield fundamentals really do look solid at this point. And the other point to to um, remember is that equity earnings, when when the economy slows down, earnings go down. Equity holders get those get or have a claim on those earnings, right? Bond holders have a higher claim on those earnings. And really what you're looking for, what, what your concern is with high yield bonds is that the companies don't go into bankruptcy, right? That they their credit ratings don't get downgraded, but more importantly, that they don't go into bankruptcy. Whereas with an equity, if if a company doesn't go doesn't go bankrupt, but its earnings get cut in half, that in, that equity investor is going to take a really big haircut, right? Whereas the high yield investor, if the, if they avoid bankruptcy, that the haircut is not going to be. Um, nearly as significant. So you've got more downside protect, protection in a scenario where earnings slow, but you don't have, uh, you don't have defaults. Uh, so, and, and when we look at kind of the default outlook, it looks for, even though we, we know recession uh, is, is a very significant likelihood in the near term, we still think the default outlook is relatively, it's kind of, you would say, medium at this point, um, as opposed to being really, really concerning. So that's why I would say high yield over equities right now. If, you, if, if you're looking to take some risk in your portfolio, you're probably going to get a better risk reward there. Now, once we do go into recession and we're into recovery and, and things really take off, then you, you probably are going to want to switch back into equities. Uh, um, you know, provided, you know, depending on the price. That's interesting that you're you're choosing high yield over equities. Obviously, there's a correlation there, but can't you get in trouble reaching for too much yield in high yield and it's high yield for a reason, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. That absolutely that is the case. And that that's why I would I would say it, it, it's something that you you would you would consider in um, as a substitution for equities. I wouldn't say, boy, let's take a look at this as a substitution for investment grade bonds or or higher quality bonds. Um, but if you're if you're dabbling in the risk, then then that's a good idea. But yep, high, high yield is is still a very risky asset class. And on the bond side, you like treasuries on the fixed income side. Yeah, I, and like I said, that that has to do with. Um, it, that has to do with the fact that your outlook is relatively balanced. We've seen rates move up quite a bit um, to now. There's there's an equal, not not necessarily an equal amount, but there's certainly a lot more potential upside. Certainly, once the Fed starts pivoting and rates start coming down, um, Treasuries can can do very well. And generally, 
The reason you would expect to see the Fed start pivoting, one is, of course, because they feel like they've they've done a good job at, at taming inflation. But the other reason would be because they're concerned about the economy, right? So it looks like recession is is coming. So if recession does come, then you're probably going to have interest rates go down, and that uh, that is actually good for for long treasuries because there's no it's it's all about rates. It's not about uh, credit quality. Um, or you, you don't have any credit risk there. All right, Tim, it sounds like you're always finding a silver lining here, which is what I like. <laughs> um, and, and my final question for you, I don't know if Bruce has anything else, but my final question for you is Sunday night, the Ravens, the Baltimore Ravens are hosting the Bengals. I think the Ravens are just slight favorites. What's your take on that? <laughs> um, don't bet on NFL football games. <laughs> that would be my take. It's a, it's not a great asset class. Okay, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's wisdom you can, you can live by. Tim, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for enlightening us on all the good stuff here and uh, walking us through the, the global markets, the U.S. markets, the bonds, stocks, inflation, the Fed. I think we're all uh, smarter because of it. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jeff. All right, thanks for listening. Launching every Monday, it's the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest. We also want to thank Angelica Hester, our producer. Find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. You can reach out to Jeff Benjamin on Twitter if you want to pepper him with a question or two. His handle is at Benji Ryder. My handle is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll be talking to you next week.